Thanks, Brad. All right. Well, good morning. I hope that uh, before you leave, you sign up for a road group, even if uh, you've already talked to the person and you've signed up kind of verbally, just because when the forms look like there's no one there and someone else goes to sign up, like, I'm not going to spend time with that one person. So sign up. Mine are the best. I've got three. I've got a Wednesday night one called What is Reformed Theology? I'm, I told everyone I was going to plug mine. What is Reformed Theology? If you don't know what Reformed Theology is, um, it's a great opportunity to kind of get uh, some understanding of what that actually means and what it doesn't mean. That's on Wednesday nights, and it will basically bleed into a lost showing at Ross's house. So it's like theology and lost at the same time. Um, and then also my community group, which is pretty much always the best, although Jim named it just another community group. He was supposed to call it the best darn, we'll say, community group there is. So um, that's, a, that's a good one every other Sunday. And then uh, there's a couple others you can go to, too. But those are the best ones you should sign up for. I hope you do before we leave today. Um, we're going to talk a lot about leadership today in Exodus chapter 17, if you'd open your Bibles there. But I'm going to start with a quote from uh, a great president named Theodore Roosevelt. I really like, I call him Teddy, but uh, I like this guy just because he was he's a little different, kind of bold, uh, kind of brash. And so he said a quote that you've probably heard before that I'd like to start with because uh, it has some meaning for Uh, what we're going to talk about today. And here it is. He spoke this back in 1910 at a speech in Paris. And he says, It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error or shortcoming. But who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself for a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who knew neither victory nor defeat. That should be on a t-shirt. I love that quote. And the big secret, I think, about the guy that is in the arena is that most of the time, or a lot of time, he never planned to be there. In fact, my guess is he probably didn't want to be there in the first place and just kind of found himself there in the arena. See, I like to think that the guy in the arena is a leader. The one guy who maybe stepped up who raised his hand, who volunteered, who spoke out when everyone sat and remained silent and still, in whatever context that might be. And I think a lot of people who uh, find themselves in this arena sit back and kind of go, I don't really know exactly how I got here in this position of leadership, and neither does anyone else, really. And that's the crowd screaming at them. And the crowd basically starts pointing out all this guy or girl's weaknesses, pointing out all the mistakes that they make, yelling out the instructions like we do at the TV with the football players, like, why didn't you do this? The guy was wide open, screaming at him. And all it does for the guy who's sitting in the arena is confirm the very thing that he already believes is that I don't belong here. And he or she doesn't 
probably feel qualified. Quite the contrary, I think the guy in the arena probably feels fairly underqualified. Desperately hoping that no one finds out that they regularly have doubts and fears and want maybe just to jump out of the arena at the first chance they get. And I think that's a pretty good picture of any pastor, maybe any husband or mom, parent, someone in a job that you're in a supervisory position that you probably don't think you should be there. All those feelings of fear. And it seems, though, like God in you know, these big things like the Exodus and other things chooses some of the most reluctant people to lead. Maybe only the reluctant people to lead. I mean, you take Moses for example. This guy was born at a time when the Egyptian Gestapo was throwing babies into the Nile. In order to save him, his mom throws him in a basket. He sits in the reeds for a bit, crying. A daughter of Pharaoh finds him, doesn't kill him, but raises him as a child of Egypt. And for 40 years, he pretty much pretends to be, knowing who he is, an Egyptian. Until he can't handle the injustice anymore of his people being beaten upon and in a moment of passion kills a guy. So he therefore becomes this fugitive and flees. And 40 years later, he's called back. He's this 80-year-old fugitive shepherd out in the hills. And God shows up and says, Alright, you know that powerful empire that you are a criminal on record in? I want you to go back and we're going to free the people. And Moses, as he's speaking to this bush, he says, take your shoes off. Doesn't bow, if you notice. Hides himself, but doesn't bow. And then he disagrees with God. He tells him to his face, you got the wrong guy. Do you know who I am? Do you know who I'm not? And God... Puts him in his place a little bit. But I think that it's such a clear picture of people who I think are called to lead at times. And I'm not always talking about these big, grandiose leadership positions you think of. Maybe any point of leadership. Where you really don't, like Moses, desire to lead. And you have a list, a defense as to why you are not qualified to do what you are doing. And why you won't step into the arena. But he goes... Not because I think he's qualified or suddenly he gets all the answers or he even knows exactly how this is going to play out because God doesn't tell him any step of the way. He doesn't tell him how many plagues there are. He doesn't tell him exactly what's going to happen as he speaks. But he goes because he doesn't have much confidence in himself, but he knows that the God that he believes in, the God that he worships, told him to go. He doesn't see himself as a big leader and I think this is what anyone who steps into the arena probably feels like. I know I do, to be honest with you. A lot of positions of leadership that I go, I don't know how, why, I shouldn't be here. And if you don't feel that way, either you're lying or you're a way stronger leader than I am. But knowing, I think, how Moses feels a little bit, I begin to feel a little bit of sympathy for him because as he's leading these people through this wilderness, he's not this like super... Superman, fearless guy that never doubts or is never scared. He's the guy that didn't want to do this in the first place. And the first leadership opportunity he has, he goes before Pharaoh. He's like, okay, God, I'll do what you said. 
And he goes up, probably pretty begrudgingly. Thus says the Lord, let my people go. And that whole exchange, he's like, who's the Lord? What are you talking about? In fact, what happens as a result is things get infinitely worse. Pharaoh hates him. His own people hate him. He comes out. All the work has been doubled after choosing to lead. And they're like, what did you do? What did you say? You must have screwed it up. He's like, no, I really didn't. I did exactly what. No, we hate you. And they begin to despair infinitely worse than they were before. Things got worse because he decided to lead. And then the plagues happen and he's somewhat, you know, vilified. And he comes out and he's leading these people. And they start asking him questions from the very beginning. What are you doing? Where are you leading us? Going to the sea? Where's our food? Where's our water? This stuff's bitter. Like nonstop. This is the guy that didn't want to be there in the first... You know, he's like, Lord, I told you, this is, uh, this is why I didn't want to do this. This is why I'm not qualified. I keep screwing up. He's like, no, you're not screwing up. Just because there's booze and just because there's applause at times doesn't mean you're screwing up. And so, I think uh, with Moses, like with all of us, leadership is hard. I mean, who, who would want to be a leader? Who would ever want to step out and volunteer, put your hand up, speak out? Who? Because it's so much easier to be a spectator. You can criticize. You can do nothing until you never fail. No one will ever hate you. You really won't disappoint anybody because no one expects anything. You can sit and go, that's weak. Wouldn't have done that if it was me. I can't believe you said that. And yet you're just completely outside of it. You're not in the arena. You can go home. No one ever wants to be responsible because, you know, honestly, when everything goes wrong, what's the first question they ask? Who's responsible for this? Not not me. I don't want to be the one responsible. And there's some positions I think they're thrust upon. I remember when I was, um, before I was a dad. Now, let's just go. Before I was a husband, I knew exactly how I was going to be as a husband. I had it planned out exactly. I'm not going to be like that. I'm going to be like this. And I had all this vision. And then I got married. And it's like, marriage is tough. You know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm leading this woman now, and I had it all figured out, and it's like parenting. For those who have kids, I, you go into the supermarket, right? You see a kid, you don't have kids. You see a kid freaking out, you're like, dude, my kid would never do that, right? You see a kid saying stuff, breaking stuff, spilling stuff, you got all this vision of what it's going to be like, right? And then you get a kid, and it is totally different. And the next time you're in the supermarket with your two, three kids, right? And they're screaming and I hate you and all this stuff. And you're like looking over and the other guy you see him, you're like, yeah, brother, I know. (laughs) I know. I'm with you. Right? Because you already have this vision of like, it's so easy to be the guy on the outside and go, I know exactly what it's like and what it's going to be like. And until you actually get in the arena or maybe you're thrust into the arena, you don't know squat. You don't know squat. So it's way easier. No one wants to take that chance and be a, be a leader, be a spectator. It's so much, 
so much more convenient. So up to this point, God has um, allowed Moses to be the only guy to kind of take the heat and be in the arena. And God has pretty much up to this point fought for Israel the whole time when they have done nothing but criticize and complain as they watch Moses flounder and screw up in their opinion. And we have a shift here in the end of Exodus 17 where God begins instead to just fight for Israel. He starts fighting through Israel. And you begin to see this change from redemption of this people to this people starting to redeem the world. And how it can't all be about one guy. And it can't be even about two guys, Aaron and Moses, or three. It's got to be about a group of people on mission in community together. Which means some people are going to have to shut their mouths out in the crowd and actually get in the stinking arena. Which is terrifying to a lot of people. But I think actually the most rewarding thing you can do. Exodus 17 is where we're going to go. The very end in verse 8. Then we'll read the story where they get attacked. Then we'll go into 18. What has happened up to this point? They just took water from the rock when God basically gave them a trial and judged himself, if you will, in their place. Put an end to their complaining and healed them at the same time. So he was both just and the justifier pointing all towards Christ. In verse 8, right after this, says this, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek tomorrow. I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him and sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on side of the other, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. And then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book. Recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar, called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. And the Lord will have a war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, the Amalekites, which are descended from Amalek, uh, are from or descended from Esau. Now, Jacob was the father of the twelve tribes of Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Esau was his brother, whom he had deceived to get the birthright. So you have this, basically, sibling kind of battle here that's going on that's been around for generations. And the Amalek was this descendant, obviously, of, of Esau. Then he creates this people that live in this general area where they're at. And they feel threatened in some way, so they attack. And God seems pretty upset with them. It's not just like, go battle them. He basically says, go obliterate them. And this isn't the last time he fights with the Amalekites. They kind of come up regularly over and over again. Like, why are you so upset? Well, these guys are pretty cheap in the way they fight. If you read in Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 25, you find out that what they were doing is they were coming behind Israel and knocking off all the old people and the youngsters and people who couldn't really defend themselves. Just picking off the weak. It's like dropping a bomb in a convalescent home or something. That's pretty much what they were doing. They weren't really attacking anyone that was, you know, could defend themselves. So, Israel had been so consumed with their daily provisions of just where's my food, where's my water, 
that they had kind of lost sight of what the larger mission was that they were on, the journey they were on, and that is they were on their way to the promised land. But this promised land, or the land between them, it's full of a ton of enemies. And so this is the first of many wars that they're going to fight, but they kind of believe at some level that, you know, it's just going to be easy street, and it's not. It's going to be very, very difficult. And so, unfortunately, I think in the Christian world, and I include myself in this, the fact that we live in a world that is at war and that we're actually being attacked all the time is kind of something we don't think about realistically. There was a woman that came to our church when we first started who was demon-possessed, and I, for a long time, didn't think that was even possible. He's like, yeah, whatever. But when I sat and prayed over this woman and did all kinds of Hollywood-style weird stuff was happening that you would freak out if I told you, I became a believer. And in that moment, I began to understand that there's much more going on here in the spiritual realm than I ever gave it credit for. In the church, when I grew up, there was always two sides to it. There was like, there's either a demon under every single rock. I, I drive bad because the demons are making me drive bad or whatever. Or there's no such things as demons. And so there's these two polar opposites, which I found out real quick that's not the case. And if you read the Bible, you find out that we are always under attack. That we, if we are actually on mission, if we are actually trying to proclaim the Lordship of Jesus in this place in Marysville, we will be attacked. As part of this church, you will be attacked if we are actually doing what we should be doing. Brilliant. Wonderful. Doesn't that sound good? But the Bible does say that the devil... Describes it very clearly. He is a lion looking around for someone to devour. And when he's not devouring somebody, Ephesians 6 says he's firing missiles at us constantly. And yet all these bad things happen. We go, God, that's just bad luck. That really stinks. I can't believe things worked out that way. Forgetting that we are at war. That we gather together as a community for much more to talk about how we used to be in slavery or celebrate that God gave us daily bread. But the fact is that we are at war and we are being attacked and we have to strengthen our defenses through various ways. And I think Israel at some level has forgotten that. And I think as the church, we've made Christianity and our gatherings about things that aren't insignificant, but certainly lose sight of the bigger picture, like, you know, potluck suppers and sweater vests and car washes and sending our secondhand clothes to Mexico. Nothing wrong with those things, but we're at war. We're at war here, and if we're going to put a flag in Marysville or in Snohomish County or whatever, it's going to be on Satan's radar. For a while, you can kind of be under the radar, but when you start to see lives transformed, you're not, and you're attacked. And I think that leaders, not just pastors, leaders live recognizing that we are at war. That you have an enemy that hates you, that hates your faith, that hates your marriage, that hates your family, that hates your house, that hates everything that you represent if you represent Jesus. That's the reality. But I'm not certain we live that way. And it's not to live in fear because Jesus defeated all of that. Colossians 2 tells us that but it's to live with that sober reality that things are broken and we are in the middle of a battle. Now, I think that as you begin to see Moses talk to Joshua and say, okay, I want you to choose 
men to go fight. There's a couple different kinds of people that happen or in this situation. One is, there's people that Joshua doesn't choose. If you think about this. So he goes, he goes Joshua, and Joshua becomes the, the military leader as we go into the, the promised land over the Jordan. But for now, he says, first time Joshua's mentioned, he's Moses' assistant. Joshua will pick some guys. So the first thing I thought about was, there's some guys he doesn't pick. The question is, well, why? Why does he pick a bunch of people? He picks particular guys. And I think uh, we can imagine why Joshua might have chosen some men or not chosen others. And maybe it was age, maybe it was temperament, maybe it was skill. But these guys weren't, you know, they haven't been out of Egypt for long and they didn't have a real extensive boot camp in between that time somewhere. These guys had spent time complaining and gathering food. So it's not like they had a lot of time of military training. So none of these guys are really trained militarily. They probably have some weapons of what they either made or they took from Egypt. But the fact is, he doesn't choose some because for whatever reason, they're not ready or equipped to fight. They're not ready for battle. And I always have to ask myself, like, why? Why aren't they ready? Why aren't they ready to get into the battle? Why aren't they equipped to get into battle? What haven't they done that they should have done to be equipped, to either equip themselves or to seek out, seek out people who could have equipped them? And I think that there's a lot of people that have probably been Christians a long time that should have been trained by now or are not to fight. And they've ignored it or fought it. And then there's people who probably um, are just ready to fight and rare to fight, but they want to fight for the wrong reasons. They just want to go kill somebody. Let me go destroy somebody with the Word of God, right? But then there's the guys, I think, that happen that realize they should be trained, they should know more, and they have done nothing but sit back and watch people in the arena. And as they watch that person in the arena, they see something they really innately, truly desire to do, but they don't do it. They can't do it. Henry David Thoreau, love his writings, he once said that men live lives, most men live lives of quiet desperation sitting back and just wanting to live and wanting to fight and wanting to do that, but watching everyone go off to the battle and going, I wish I was with them. You can be with them, but we've got to be trained. And then there's the people that Moses, I'm sorry, Joshua does pick. And those are the ones that are ready for whatever reason for battle. And I'm guessing that he probably chose the loudest complainers. And I've realized that not because he wants them all to die, although... You guys go on the front lines. No, I don't think that's it. I've actually realized that I used to hate complainers. I used to just get so irritated because I always believe I was right about everything. And I've realized, uh, well, marriage teaches that, that I'm not right about a lot. But I realized that, you know, there are people that speak or complain about things. And a lot of times they're right. But they don't ever do anything about it half the time. But the complainer at the core is the person that sees something that could be better. They do. They see something that's not right. They see that things could be better. And so I, pre- so I think he probably chose a lot of the people, the complainers, the loudest people, the boldest people, maybe the most courageous people. At least they had some level of courage to speak out. He's like, you want to speak? Here we go. Puts a sword in his hand. Battle some reason, they're equipped to fight in some way. They have some level of skill. And people fight different ways, right? There's always, in, you look at the military, there's always different kinds of fighters. There's your, you know, your 
archery guys, and we go old school, your archery guys, your horse guys, your just infantry guys, your bullet stoppers. you got all those people, right? And, you know, they all have their different skills. you got the bomb guys, the engineer guys. Remember that game Stratego? Like all these different guys, right? Like, well, what are they, why can't you just like be all pawns and go? But there's different guys. We all have different skills. Not everyone's going to be up here and preach. Right? Some people, like, that freaks the snot out of them to speak in front of anybody. Okay? Doesn't for me. That's, that's what God wired me as. But God wired you with something to fight in some way. And the question is, why aren't you using that to fight? Sitting at home on your sword. I don't know how good that's going to be for you. I don't know if Brad looked forward to, you know, ten years ago and thought, I'm going to be leading worship in front of a church someday. I think he probably imagined he was going to be, you know, the next Justin Timberlake or something. (laughs) Well, man, that was mad. But the reality is, you know, we don't look and go, hey, uh, let's go. But God gives you something. I don't know if we ever even think about that. We're so worried about what other people don't have. And then there's the people, I think, that I love that go up with Moses. Moses takes Aaron and he takes her with him. Ben-Hur. They don't know who Ben is. They think he might be the husband of Miriam. There's a lot of speculation. He's only mentioned this time in the Bible and another time, which uh, they believe it's not even. It's a different guy. But sometimes the best way to get in the battle is to just help the leaders who are already in the battle. It's not to like grab a sword as much as it's to go with the guy and carry his. And what I love about this scene with Ben and Aaron is they Moses is up there, he takes his staff and he puts it up like this and he's holding it up with two hands. And then he starts failing. And every time he fails, the battle starts going bad for him. And people are seeing like, Dude, he's failing okay, we're getting our tails kicked. And he lifts it back up and they're like, Whoosh, you know, everything's going great. And then it falls. And the same thing. And so... Ben and Aaron see this, and this is what they don't do. I love this. They go, yeah, you see he's failing over there, I see. Hey, Moses, you need some help? Can we help, help you do anything? They don't ask. They don't ask any questions. They get some rocks, they put them down. Here, sit here. Let us hold your hands up. They don't wait for someone to tell them what to do. They don't wait for Moses. They don't wait for an epiphany from God. They don't just ask. And I, I know the hearts are right, and a lot of people ask me a question like, how can we help you? Sometimes I have no idea what to tell you. I have no idea. Leaders don't know what to tell you oftentimes. But I will tell you this. Sometimes I want to say, well, open your eyes. There are plenty of battles to fight. There are plenty of things to do. Take your pick. Look at the people around you struggling. We've got so many people in this church that have helped since the beginning. Since the beginning. I'm going to point some out and they're going to hate it. But like the Stewarts, for example. They have set up coffee every stinking Sunday for almost two years since they got here. Probably because the coffee was so bad in the beginning. But now, you know, every Sunday they're here faithfully serving. That is a huge burden. Why? Because we need our coffee. Right? Brad, come every Sunday and does music. I never talk to him, but barely during the week we talk about music. And he comes and he sets up, picks songs every Sunday, organizes bands every week. And Jim, Jim does so much in this church you would never believe. And most of these guys are working full-time, if not part-time, doing all this stuff. And they have faith in the people in the kids' ministry. 
My gosh, they're nonstop. I went in there the Sunday I didn't preach, and Aaron was in there by himself, surrounded by like 15 kids. I'm like, oh my gosh. He's like, hey, things are great. I'm like, dude, are you crazy? So I sat in there with him and played with the kids and talked with the kids because he's been given a ton, faithfully. And I've, he gets nothing from it. I mean, he'll say, or he'll say, well, I just feel like I'm serving. That's great, but practically speaking, they get nothing. We don't pay them anything. We say we love you. And I, so I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful to you, Steve and Kathy. I'm grateful to Aaron and Chris and Jim and Brian, all these guys. Brian set up the signs. He put up the signs every Sunday. And after a while, I was like, my gosh, I'm just like, these signs are like huge. Okay, so Jesse's doing the signs now. But this doesn't happen without us. And sometimes it's just a support of coming together and not asking the question, saying, oh, we need to do that. We need to fight that and supporting. It's awesome. But at the end, the end of Exodus 17 here, he builds an altar and he says, the Lord is our banner. And I like the, the statement. It says, a hand upon the throne of the Lord as he puts up this altar. The battle isn't won by how strong we are, even how much we desire, how skilled we are. It's fought that way, but it's won because we've got one hand on the throne and one hand on our sword. And never forgetting that we are dependent upon God for everything. I pray every Sunday morning that things just get set up. Recognizing that there's something that always goes wrong every Sunday. Guarantee you. Something breaks. Something doesn't work. Something goes haywire. And we just put our trust that it's going to work. And it's going to come together. And it happens with community groups. It happens with everything. It happened this morning with Brad. He's about to play. And he's like, uh-oh. I forgot something. And he had to leave. And I didn't see him. It was like five minutes to begin. I'm like, this will be interesting, Lord. Hand on the throne. Hand on the throne. And what we do when things go bad, and even in our own lives, but even the church, we just hold up the stinking banner and say, I don't know, but we got this banner. And we'll continue to depend on that for the strength to get through it. Did we want to be here for two and a half years? No. We'd like to move on by now. That's not what God wants us to do yet. So we just keep our eyes on the banner versus trying to figure out every little battle and how we're going to fight it perfectly. I don't know. There's some battles we jump into that are unwinnable from my view. They don't seem like it. And the only thing that keeps me going is that God has said, me, head towards the flag, man. Head towards the flag. Going to chapter 18, and it shifts a little bit. I'm going to read it as quickly as I can. And you go from these battles outside the community that the community is on to all these little battles inside the community. Okay, here we go. Chapter 18, Jethro, his father-in-law, shows up. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel's people and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. And now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he sent her home, most likely when he had done the whole foreskin adventure, which you can download that sermon. It's quite interesting. And it is most likely they went back to Midian while Moses was in Egypt. So he brings them back. The name of the one was Gershom, for he had said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he had said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses 
I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, most likely sent word because they didn't want to be killed for bringing his whole entourage into there as the Amalekites had. And Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. And then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake and all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how Jethro had delivered them. And, the, and Jethro rejoiced for all the good the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, now the hand of Pharaoh. He has delivered the people for under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came in with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, the father-in-law, with Moses' father-in-law before God. Before this time, Jethro was what would amount to a pagan priest. And he hears about all the adventures and the victory that happened through Israel. And he comes and he basically becomes a believer. And he declares or proclaims that the God, Yahweh, is the God above all gods, if there are any other gods, which... There aren't, but he lives in a polytheistic world. He says, he's numero uno. He is the one most powerful God. And he says very clearly, he hears, he rejoices, he gives thanks, he confesses, he presents an offering, and then he worships within this new community that he ultimately becomes a part of. And then as he's watching... He makes some assessments, and it says here, verse 13, The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw that all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they've had a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and His laws. And Moses' father-in-law says to him, What you are doing is not good. So this guy becomes part of the community, spends time in the community, and then he assesses the community. And we've had a lot of people come into our community with expert wisdom. Okay? A lot. And sometimes the expert wisdom, well, rarely does it come face-to-face. Oftentimes it comes through email. Occasionally it comes through whispers to other people. And some of them offer their advice after perusing just our website. Some download a sermon or two. Some take the chance and actually come to a church service and listen or watch, or read. But within days, or within even hours sometimes, I'll get an email, or a phone call, and many I don't even tell my wife about, because she would just think about it all the time. Oh my gosh, think about that. Alright? I tell the guys, and they tell us everything that we're not doing right. And rarely do these uh, conversations lead to a meeting and, and where we have a conversation because I think for the most part their intent, because they're not part of our community, is not to help but to tell me why Jesus would be so disappointed in all the things that we're doing. And they say those very words. And we've had very intelligent people 
PhDs in theology come. I've had meetings with them. And they've said, well, and this is after maybe meeting them twice. Well, if I'm going to be a leader in your community. What? Yeah, if I'm going to be a leader in your community, here are the things you need to, to do. And lays it out. I mean, lays it out, every detailed thing of what things we need to change and structures and programs and what we say and how we sing. And it's like, hold on there, Turbo. Why don't you just uh, become maybe part of the community first? Why don't you get to know some of the people in our community? Why don't you spend some time before you throw out all your wisdom, which I'm sure it is wise, about what we should and shouldn't be doing? He didn't come back. And that's the reality. Our church is certainly not above criticism. Our leadership is not above criticism. We are criticized, and I've learned very painfully to accept criticism that is solid and to ignore criticism that is just foolishness. But we'll be the first ones to tell you that we're not doing everything right, and half the time we don't know exactly what we're doing, but we're doing our best to make decisions according to to what God would have us do and not to the applause or the boos of the crowd. Because as Jesus experienced when he came into Jerusalem, the applause and the later boos aren't always accurate of what's right. So we're trying to make the best decision, realizing that we can't make everyone happy. We don't vote in our church. We're not a congregational church where you get a vote on everything. This is not a democracy. It's an elder-run church. And what that means is this. We have the burden burden as in the job to spend time with you to develop trust with you relationship with you so that you believe we are trying to do the best we can for this community and i can understand if you're outside and you're looking at like it's a business and i don't like how this business is run that's because you don't know us you don't know why we're deciding what we're doing then as a brother or sister comes to me and says you know i don't understand this can you explain to me why do you do it this way is completely different than someone coming in. I don't like the way you guys do this. That's wrong. They have no ownership. And so Jethro, I think, comes with critique that's pretty helpful. And he could have easily said, this is just not good, and walked away. But he comes in and he says, uh, as a brother, you know, this is, I have concerns about this. It seems like too much, like you're, you're doing something wrong here, Moses. And what Moses is doing is every day, all day, he sits with thousands of people who have little disputes and arguments over what is right and wrong. How what would God have them do in this situation? And he's sitting there and he's judging with them. They'll come and it's like, a, imagine a huge line. He's like, you should do this. You're wrong. You're right. You know, nonstop, all day, wiped out. And people are left in line when he has to, you know, retire and go to bed, there's still people who haven't had their issues resolved because they're all focused on one guy. And what I appreciate about Jethro is he does see this not good. He has concern for his son-in-law, just as I would hope people would have concern for our leaders and our children. They'd see, man, you're wiped out. You need a break. And instead of just walking around going, I can't believe they work you so dang hard here. So let me help you and offer a solution we've gotten emails from people in our church that start off with i don't want to be someone who complains and the rest of the email is complaints that's it and it ends love you 
We love what you're doing, but let me tell you what, everything else is crap. Pretty much is what it says. It's like, I love you too. You know, it's, it's difficult. But Jethro, I think, comes, he's part of the community, he invests in the community, and then he's speaking out of concern, and he offers a solution. And it's a solution that is wise. And I think oftentimes leaders don't want to listen to, even from people who they love, because they're control freaks. I've been guilty of this sometimes. I don't want to let that go. Because you release people and it gets messy. What if they don't do it as good as I would? What if it doesn't happen? And the thing that we're trying to commit to, and that's why we have the road groups, is to understand that ministry, if you want to call it that, mission is messy. We want people to fail as long as you're failing forward. Right? And learn it. We'll, we'll release you to do stuff. That's what we're trying to do. There's not 15 miles of red tape to get through before you can be stamped as a leader. Because a lot of people need to step up and take a chance and be empowered and say, we believe you can do it. Go for it. That would be awesome. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But there sometimes, and I've again been guilty of this, where you become, I am Jesus. I am the Savior. I'm going to save everything by fixing everything, doing everything. And Jethro basically says, Moses, you can't do everything. There's one Savior. The job is taken. His name is Jesus. Sorry. But leaders have a lot of difficulty releasing stuff. And I think one of the difficulties is when you've got followers that won't lead, you feel like you're alone. Who am I going to release it to, guys? It's like they would release stuff, but they don't have confidence that there's people actually there to catch it if they release it. It's much easier, I think, much easier to release stuff when we know a leader knows that they're not alone. And that means that you can't be a follower forever. Can't be a follower forever. So here's what Jethro says for him to do. He says, that's not good, Moses. Verse 18, you and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the things too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I'll give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent, I like that, may God be with you. I trust you're going to make a wise decision. We'll leave it up to God. Not, if you don't do this, you're an idiot. Just like, you know what, let me tell you what I think. Let God lead. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. You shall warn them about statutes and laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men for all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over people as chiefs of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. So military identifications. Let them judge the people at all times. Every great manner they shall bring to you, but in a small manner they shall decide themselves, so it will be easier for you, and they shall bear the burden for you, and they will, so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you and you'll be able to endure. And all these people also will go to their place in peace. And Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law. So he recommends, recommends to basically share the ministry. Set up judges that decide most of these minor disputes among all these other people. And you just deal with the major ones. If there's things that just can't be figured out, then they come to you. But otherwise, they go to one another. Brilliant! Brilliant! I wish all churches ran like this. 
And if you had, A, leaders who would release people to do that, it would. Or followers would step up to do that, it would. But generally, no one wants to be in the arena. I'd rather stay on the outside and watch. And you go, okay, what, are they, what does it mean to judge today, though? What are they doing? They are helping what men are chosen who are equipped. Moses has a responsibility to equip people. The failure of legalistic churches is this. They give you a list of things, they make all the decisions for you, and then you encounter a decision that they didn't make for you, and you're screwed. So instead, the role of the pastor and the leaders is to teach you to discern and make decisions no matter what the context is and the situation is. Instead of asking, what can I do and can I do, you ask questions like, what is most glorifying to God in this moment? Or am I glorifying myself or am I glorifying God? Those types of questions. So equip you to make decisions. And then people help one another judge. Two things are required for that. One is an understanding of God's Word. Because judging basically is discerning what would God have us do here. In the minutia of life and in the big decisions. A lot of times we just like to spend life in the big decisions and include God. Not the little stuff like, how am I going to parent this punk of a kid today? That's been my prayer. Right? How, how can I help him be a better man? How can I help my little girl be a better princess? Those are the, those are the things I need help at. And sometimes I need wisdom from others. So we help each other judge because we know what God would have us do. We know our child shouldn't complain because we say, look, Philippians 2.14, do all things while complaining. All right, some guidance. But the other thing that it requires for us to judge one another, that sounds so negative, but I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about discerning, is to have relationships with one another. Who's going to take advice from anybody you don't know? And that means that, Older people help younger people. Older people help older people. Young people help older people. I mean, we help one another. We get in community groups like this, not for the sake of checking the box to say, look, I'm in community, I'm doing church. We get into it because we encounter stuff that's difficult in life and impossible or hard to figure out by ourselves. What do I do? And a lot of times we go to our friends who are pagans, And they have no sense of why they're deciding what they're deciding other than, I can't believe she said that. She's terrible. If I was a man, I'd do this. Or a girl like, oh, she's so bad. You know, like, well, well, what is your basis for... They have no basis other than their own experience and their own desires. People who have shared experience, shared faith, shared sacrifice go, I'm going to hold the banner up of God and say, I'm going to help you understand what God would have you do. And step back and go, there's my advice. That God's will be done. Welcome to pastoring. That's exactly what it is. I don't go and say, well, you must do this or you're terrible. I say, this is what the Bible says. It's your decision. But that takes relationship. I can't just inject myself into your life and say, your marriage is broken, it stinks, it's terrible. This relationship, you shouldn't be doing that with your finances until I have relationship. And when I have relationship... Most likely, will happen is like, man, I'm broke. I don't have a job. What do I do? Well, let me help you. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? So take someone who knows God's word, or at least is committed to understanding God's word, and it takes relationship and submission to one another. 
If you look in all the, all the verses in the Bible that talk about one anothering, we'll talk about Hebrews 10. Put that verse up. Hebrews 10.24 is one of my favorite verses about the church. And we'll close on this. It says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. You should do a study of all the one anothering in the Bible. It's pretty awesome. But the purpose of us getting together and gathering together is so that we'll have relationships outside of this place to stir one another on towards love and good works. A couple of the one another's they have encourage one another, serve one another, confess to one another, bear the burdens of one another, eat with one another, love one another, carry one another, submit to one another, serve one another, rebuke one another, wait for one another, pray for one another, edify one another, accept one another, instruct one another, fellowship with one another. Time and time again, that is where judging can take place. It's helping one another discern what God would be doing in this moment and not expecting the pastor to be the guy that has to resolve everything. Not that that's happened in this church, but I think sometimes we really feel like we have to appeal to the Pope in order to figure out what to do when brothers and sisters in Christ are to help one another figure out what to do as they're in relationship. And so in our church, I am calling and hoping and praying and charging every person in the realm of my voice to answer the call to lead. There's no excuse not to. Your leadership may look different than someone else's. But I'm calling you to lead. I'm calling you to get out of the crowd. And we have got a tremendous number of percentage of people volunteering. I was sending out the setup list of all the people. It's like 20 some odd people. And I'm always blown away by even what it takes to put on that Good Friday service and different pieces that have to line in. There's a lot of people leading, don't get me wrong, and serving. But I'm asking you to join into something without promise of any reward, with a lot of criticism, with people screaming at you from the crowd because you're the one who decided to step into the arena when they didn't. I'm asking you to accept what I think at some point, is to live a life like Jesus, who, although was God, in the form of God, the Bible says, Philippians 2, which I imagine was a fairly pleasurable and enjoyable life before he came down to earth. He humbled himself. He entered a life because he decided to step into the arena, if you will, that's disruptive, that's inconvenient, that's strange, that's uncomfortable, and that's definitely unsafe. And it will demand, I think, even at the smallest level, wherever you're called to leadership, whether it be in this church or in the world somewhere in your life, it will demand a lot of things if you're truly going to lead. For some, it will take your fortune. It will take your time. It will take your energy. It will take maybe your reputation. And it will be filled with, here's the job description, crisis, complexity, betrayal, Loneliness. That's what happens. But in the end, God chooses those people, especially reluctant, and say, I can't lead the foolish as His wisdom. And it always ends up in the most amazing way as glorifying to God. Leadership. I, I've rarely met someone 
who's taken a chance to go in the arena who says it was all terrible. Typically they say it was terrible, yet it led to this glorious opportunity, this glorious time. So remember today, my prayers, that you guys take communion, and we take communion, and you take the bread, which is Jesus Christ's body broken for us, and we dip it in the blood, which is his blood shed to fill in all the cracks that are broken, and to give us and empower us with him working through us. You're called to follow God. And to lead others. And you don't need a title or position to do that. You're called to battle on the front lines or to support those who are on them because we are at war. And don't tell me you can't. Don't tell me you can't. You got a list of, you got a defense team right now rushing to your head telling you why all the reasons you can't. But that defense team was ended, if you will, when Jesus died because you don't have that excuse anymore. You are empowered by Christ. And imagine what the 12 disciples were thinking when Jesus ascended to heaven, right? Okay, guys, I'm leaving this in your hands. What? Looking over at Peter, the denier, right? Looking over the other guys who weren't even nearby. Got some fishermen, tax collectors. You're leaving this, this mission in our hands? Are you? He's like, yeah. And he says at the end, don't worry, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. So he takes a ragamuffin group of punks and he creates the most powerful thing imaginable. So I pray that you will do that. And instead of asking uh, if Jesus knows exactly who you are, do you know who I am? I hope you'll simply ask, uh, do you really, maybe he'll ask of you, do you really know who he is? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the great adventure that is this faith, Lord. Father, I thank you for saving the people of Israel. I thank you for bringing your Son through those people, Father, and saving us and redeeming us in the same way you saved them from our own Egypts, God. But you've got us on this journey in the middle of the wilderness, Lord, and we need leaders who will push it further, who will protect us when we are attacked, who help judge one another as we're in fellowship and relationship for Your glory to discern what You would have us do in every detail of life. I pray, God, that people will be moved in their hearts to serve You in a new and fresh way, to connect with one another in a new and fresh way, that we can experience the glory that is being in the arena. And though it hurts, and though it's painful, And though we receive criticism, God, we know that you are pleased and you are with us, and we would rather be in no other place. So we thank you in the name of your Son, through your Spirit. Amen.